0: Staging Sound, a podcast reflecting on theatre music, sound design, sonic practices and experiences. Welcome to another episode of Staging Sound. This is the start of a series of episodes documenting the conference Theatre Sound as Collaboration we held in Munich in September 2023. This conference concluded the research group Theatre Sound at the Center of Advanced Studies here in Munich at the Ludwig-Maximilians-Universität and it was co-curated by the fellows of this group. Thematically, we wanted to focus on the collaborative, the relational, the in-between aspects of sonic practices in theatre by exploring distributed forms of creation and shared agencies of practitioners and non-human agents such as technologies. It will consider what kinds of meanings emerge from theatre sound in its many dimensions, what experiences it holds for theatre audiences. Some of the overarching questions included how can we describe the sound of theatre as the medium and the outcome of a collaboration? What role does sound play in collective processes of creation and perception in theatre? What forms of shared knowledge are produced here through sounding and listening? and can we describe the cultural differences in the construction of oral oral experiences this is how bruce r smith puts it uh, how can we describe this and and perceive this how do can we describe what bruce r smith describes as the cultural differences in the construction of oral experiences how do joint sound practices contribute to an oral identity of a theatre the sound signature of an ensemble or a directorial team. To answer these and other questions, the conference looked at and listened to the acoustic, epistemic, performative, musical, phenomenological, technological, and social conditions, effects, and meanings of sound, music, and voice in past and present theatre practices. So over the next few episodes, um, you will hear edited versions of the talks, the demonstrations and the discussions that took place. Unfortunately, not all of them could be recorded in a meaningful way, but uh, you will get a good sense of the endeavor as a whole nonetheless, I'm sure. You can also find out more details on a dedicated blog site uh, where the the whole conference program and its contributors and participants are listed, and the link is, as always, in the show notes. Now, enjoy the starting series on The Conference That Was. Welcome. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for joining us uh, online. And I'll start again, because uh, people on Zoom haven't heard me before, sing the praise of TSAS, which is the Center of Advanced Studies. Uh, and just again, to, to thank you all for hosting us. You, on Zoom, you can't see it, but this is a wonderful building and, and a wonderful space that we're in and it's been hosted magnificently by everyone from TAS from the director, Christoph uh, Rapp, from the managing director, Annette Meyer, who's here. Thank you so much for, for sticking around. From Anna Röper, Andrea Kors, Isabella Schopp, uh, the assistant, Nikolai, who's uh, sort of helping with, with all the uh, breaks. Uh, and also not to forget, because she was there at the very beginning of the project, Susanne Schaffrat, who's uh, left in the meantime, not because of us, I'm very <laughs> sure. She assured me, but who was instrumental in, in sort of looking after us, so I'll just say a few words to set up the scene, sort of to say how we got to this conference and where, where this fits in, and then I'll hand over to the first panel, which I'm really uh, looking forward to. This is really a stepping stone, or, or one part of a pretty long journey. Theatre music has been something that has interested me from a very early, from early student days, even when I did sort of music for theatre productions and back in Hildesheim uh, and other places. Um, And it kind of, you know, accompanied me, even though in the meantime I explored other kinds of interplays of music and theater, uh, which we sometimes called composed theater with uh, my colleague Matthias Riebstock, or we uh, refer to them as theater noise with my colleague Lynn Kendrick, where she's she's right there, or we refer to them as musicality and theater. That I finally did myself (laughs) without (laughs) help. Um, But I kind of wanted to come back to theatre music in a more traditional sense perhaps and applied for a grant with the DFG which I luckily got and was able to work with Tamara uh, Tamara Quick who's also here uh, for about four years on theatre music uh, and particularly in German speaking theatres. That project finished last year and while we were very happy with it and satisfied with the results there was a book there was tons of articles we felt this should expand we should expand this in two ways and one of the ways in which we wanted to go was obviously leave the German perspective and, and go a bit more international and look at other contexts, countries, theater cultures. This is still a little bit European-leaning, and we're sort of acutely aware of that, but, but at least we've been able to really broaden our horizon in, in this hemisphere. And the second one was to say, well, isn't theater music always part of or contributing to or embedded in theater sound overall? So, you know, we sort of went from purely looking at music's contribution and interplay with the theatrical event to the sound of theatre in a more more general way. And this is where uh, we were lucky enough to be funded by TSAS uh, by the Center for Advanced Studies, which allowed me to invite uh, very esteemed scholars and scholar practitioners in this field to to come here, to have exchanges, discussions, to see performances together, to record podcasts, podcast episodes reminiscing about papers we had already written or papers we were about to write or things like that. So we, we kind of covered a wide range of, of activities there. And it kind of emerged that... A, we wanted to talk about theatre sound as collaboration, which sort of, you know, puts a little twist on the on the old idea that there's this one person who composes or who's who's in charge of the sound design um, and and where it's sort of a singular uh, source, a singular sort of expressive uh, mind who who puts uh, puts their thought behind that. But it, it doesn't only mean sort of collaboration between different artists. It also means perhaps, and we'll come back to this theme, I think, collaborations with institutions with um, acoustics of a space with technologies you know that are ubiquitous these days uh with audiences and their uh listening facilities and, and, and intentions and abilities and all those kind of things so it's it's really uh, a look at how sound is is an emergent phenomenon that comes from interplays um that are very complex and we're trying to sort of not solve that but but make another dent into that area i think with this with this conference and while this developed, this notion of collaboration also became sort of a modus operandi for us, for the, for the conference. It was very much something where we found cura- curational teams for different sessions uh, who, who collaborated on, on picking a theme, on sort of identifying speakers. And it became a really dialogical enterprise to sort of come up with, with what we're doing this also leads, and I think you can guess that from the beginning of this conference, to a slightly unusual conference format. You know, uh, there's, there's going to be a few formal papers, but not many. A lot of it is dialogue, is conversation, is demonstration, is creative practice. So it's going to, to sort of really tear at the seams of what an ordinary conference usually does, uh, which is great. But it also caused me some sleepless nights of whether it will work. I think that's all I had to say for now. And let's kick off with session one. Thank you yes. so much, guys. <laughs> Welcome out there. Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> this is the first panel, the theater through sound, from mega musicals to digital manushi,
2: and we are Duska, Len, Millie. Millie. This panel focuses on the rapid rise of sound making as a collaborative and sometimes corroborative art of theatre
1: production. We are interested in um, the relations between sound making, technologies and theatre, collaborations between sound design, production and theatre making processes, atmospheres, soundscapes, noises. And And everything from the smallest possible, the digital
2: minutiae, to the most expansive, the mega musical. So we're trying to really have a conversation this afternoon about that the arc, the possibilities, uh, the extent uh, of sound as theater through sound.
1: In this session, we are going to have SK Shlomo. Thank you for being here. Uh, Storyteller, theater maker, beatboxer, drummer, percussionist former world champion in live looping. Um, S.K. Schlomo has worked with Bjork, uh, Ed Sheeran, uh, Jarvis Cocker, a huge number of uh, famous people um, at Glastonbury. Um, He has also done gigs at the Edinburgh Festival. He's been an artist in residence at the South Bank Centre. Has done a lot of really interesting community work and fundraising. Uh, we collaborated during the lockdown supporting the development of S.K. Shlomo's piece, uh, which uh, has had different names. <laughs> it's currently currently called, the latest name is, is Breathe, but it existed as a Culture in Quarantine little BBC short as well.
3: Thank you so much for the introduction, Tushka. Uh, my name is SK Shlomo, that's my stage name, my, my real name is Shlomo, most people call me Shlo, and uh, my pronouns are they, them, if that's okay with you. If that's not okay with you, those are still my pronouns. Uh, and today I'm going to be talking to you about my relationship with technology uh, and how I've had to sort of self-develop my own tech in order to use live audio and tell the stories I want to tell in my theatre productions. Um, So it should be really fun. I'd like to tell you a little bit of a story, take you through my little journey that I've been on. And then if anyone has any questions, uh, I would be more than delighted to talk. I love talking about music. Um, I am, um, I don't know if you know what this thing is I'm wearing here. This is a sunflower lanyard and this represents people who have an invisible disability. Uh, My disabilities are uh, ADHD and autism, ironically there used to be a little card on there that says I have ADHD but that's now been lost, I don't have that anymore which is <laughs> sort of self, self-fulfilling prophecy but in terms of the autism um, these are both things that I've only really identified with relatively recently but to understand why my brain just loves anything to do with audio, sound like those are my autistic special interests so if we're going to talk about it you're going to see a very happy show. Quick show of hands, who here knows what beatboxing is? Who's heard about beatboxing before? Most of us have. Uh, if you don't know what beatboxing is, it's when you make music with your voice, like one, two, three. I have no idea how that sound translated over Zoom. Actually, I've got some clips I can show you uh, about um, a show I made called Breathe, if that I mentioned earlier. Uh, I started work on this before lockdown. Um, when I knew I wanted to make something, but lockdown slowed it down. Uh, and it's it's a piece of storytelling, a solo piece of theatre, which went on to win a very prestigious award here in the UK, an Edinburgh Fringe Award, which I'm really proud of. I'm going to show you the little trailer for the show to give you a little flavour of what Breathe is about. Using to tell my story, they are called mouth) single time you thought your life was over like you'd never be okay ever again led you to this moment. Breathe. This breath. Just breathe! And then it will lead to the next and then the next because I swear we are the humans who survived. We are the humans who remembered to breathe. Yay! So that's breathe, um, and in the show breathe, I tell a very, very deep emotional story about my my life, about how I got into a really bad and life threatening place with my mental health, and how I realised I needed to stop hiding my true self if I was going to get better. So the show is does go into quite some heavy places emotionally, um, but it's very, very uplifting and joyful at the end. You kind of, yeah. You feel really alive afterwards um, and to do this show i really needed to dive deep into being able to use the technology for live looping in a way that didn't interfere with my ability to tell a story and and be very very emotional um, so i'm going to dive into that in this little session with you today like how do we tell a dramatic story whilst creating sound live on stage if you're a performer who creates sound uh, without kind of those two different energies interfering with each other you want them to amplify each other uh, so first of all i'm going to just show you a clip from breathe of me beatboxing so you can get a little bit of a clearer understanding what beatboxing is
2: wow. One,
3: two Like, that's nothing makes noise some my everybody uh, uh so that's just a real quick demonstration of of like probably the most simple piece of technology in the show which is where i uh i just beatbox it's just my face it's just my mouth there's nothing clever going on the story goes like this i started beatboxing when i was a small child because my parents bought me a drum kit for my eighth birthday and then immediately banned me from practicing those drums because the neighbors complained after about five minutes um so I ended up using my voice as a way to express rhythms and music. Um, I didn't know it was called beatboxing. I didn't know other people did it. It was just, looking back, I could probably describe it as um, a neurodivergent trait. Uh, it's a way to for me to keep focused, for me to keep having something to do with my energy at all times. Once other people heard me doing this thing that I was really only doing for my own sort of survival and pleasure, I started becoming very quickly a kind of in-demand beatboxer doing shows at the age of sort of like 18 or 19 and I, don't, I never really saw the beatboxing as anything more than just a way to impress people and show off until I had a, an opportunity to collaborate with uh, an incredible Icelandic musician called Bjork. Let me see if I can play you a clip of me working with Bjork and you get to see young me. Here we go. When she contacted me, they were in London. They were mixing the album, and she said that I could try a few different things out. I'm
1: wondering if it's worth it because it sounds so great. Because you're so like your style,
2: mm-hmm.
1: like when I heard it on the web, and when I hear you,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it's so light and mm-hmm. it's so like fast mm-hmm. and and flickery. Yeah. Maybe maybe we should have a go at just doing like a, I don't know some like. Like a whole thing, you know, like yeah, that. Do a. Take. Yeah.
3: So I just went into the booth and I just tried out a whole lot of different vibes, different kind of rhythmic styles, and then we kind of came up with one together.
1: From Mother Oceania, your little feet make prints.
0: låta Oceania med slåmös rytme blev sett av flera miljoner människa under öppningsalvningen i OL 18.
3: so that's really fun for me to watch uh like my first kind of my first kind of international spotlight on me and also for my art form really like um at that point beatboxing was really an underground culture and that that collaboration really thrust me into the spotlight all of a sudden i was traveling all around the world doing shows um and what really came from that collaboration was me realizing that i wanted to do more than just like more than just a trick, like beatboxing up until that point had really just been a way to impress people. And I would kind of be like, look at this, I can do a Snoop Dogg song with just my voice or I can do this or I can do that. Where, whereas I watched um, Bjork not care about any gimmicks, just wanted to use me as a, uh, a form of creative expression. And I was like, oh, I want to be like this human. Uh, and so I realised if I was going to be able to expand on the beatboxing, I wanted to do more with it. And I'd just come across this thing online called Live Looping. This is a video of me explaining Live Looping for children, so hopefully uh, it'll be, be easy for you guys to understand as well. Uh, I'm talking to someone called Michael Rosen, who is uh, um, over in the UK. is a super big deal. He's like the poet laureate. So I might be like... So it's doing that by itself, because so it's just recorded you. That's recorded me, and that's going to keep going. So I can put another sound on top, like... Beast, 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 have so much fun with this machine you can have so much fun with it because any idea you have you can start looping it and then creating music so that might be a little there you go so that's live looping and i quite quickly um got autistically interested in live looping so um at this point there is this like real excitement in me in terms of like trying to find pioneering ways to express yourself in music in real time um, and then once I started getting my hands on different types of live looping equipment, once I became the world champion, people were all sending me all the latest gear because they wanted me to be using their gear in public. So I got more and more crazed. I turned into this like mad professor character with loads and loads of different pieces of equipment all plugged into each other. And it was starting to get a tiny bit out of control. It wasn't, it wasn't working. And I was like, this isn't good. I need to throw all of this away and create my own machine. And that is when I invented this machine. That we call beast. Um, just to clarify, it's not called the beast. It's I'm called sorry. beast. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So beast is called beast. And I'm going to show you another excerpt from breathe now where I demonstrate how beast works. So. This thing over here is called Beast, right? So I'm a live looper, I'm a former world looping champion and I designed my own live looping instrument called Beast. I had to learn how to write software because the stuff you could buy in the shops was not powerful enough, but I've never written a software before, which is why Beast never fucking works. (laughs) Let's see if Beast wants to play today. Everybody can you say, hello Beast? Hello Beast, hello, hello. Oh, that's kinda of cool. Hello, hello. It's mostly me. Wait. Hello? Hello. It's another to let everyone say ooh Ooh. ooh. Oh, no, I was gonna say ah, ah. ah. Yeah. Beast, everybody <laughs> that's beast um and yeah apologies for the swearing there I hadn't realized I was younger me was gonna be quite so rude uh, but yeah uh, I had to learn how to write software something that I hadn't done before um but it meant that I could essentially if I had any idea of what I wanted the the gear to be able to do I could make that happen um, just by learning how to how to do that exact type of code um and I ended up giving a TED talk about how I'd developed Beast. And then again, I found myself thrust back into the spotlight, traveling around the world doing shows with Beast. Um, and then when it came to creating this new show, Breathe, I knew I needed something even more fluid, intuitive. And that's where the most recent member of my technological family got to join. Um, it's called Glove. A Mimu Glove, in fact, let me play you one more clip. Now, this is my favorite one. This is the newest member of the family. This is Glove. Everybody say, hello, Glove. (laughs) Now, Glove is very new. In fact, I've got to calibrate Glove first. You've got to teach Glove where forwards is. Like that. And basically, this it's actually called a Mimu glove. It was invented by someone called Imogen Heap. Anyone know who Imogen Heap is? International Grammy winning superstar. And she even she sent me this. It's, she's invented this glove, which you can use like as a wireless controller for your computer. So I'm I'm try, technically I'm trying to use glove to control beast. Beast is being a little bit of a grumpy, like older sibling when the new baby arrives and not necessarily play. <laughs> Let's see if it's gonna play together. Should we see if it's gonna work? Hold on, let me see. So in theory, if this is going to work. When I point my finger, it should loop the last thing I we'll say. 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 The last thing. 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 The last The last thing. 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 The last The last thing. The last thing. The last thing put them all together. You've got mouth, you've got beast and you've got glove. And they are the three tools that I use to tell the story. Um, And the beautiful thing about having this wireless controller is that I, I don't have to break out of the character in the theater show when I'm, you know, in a really deep and emotional scene. If you're doing a one person show, you don't want in character to have to go and press a button. There were times when it does actually work really well. And I would go and interact with beast and that would really work with the narrative. But there there were other times where I was like, sat on a chair or you know in some kind of context trying to tell a story and all i'd have to do is flick my fingers or even do little movements that people couldn't even see so that i could be all my shows i create the soundtracks live in real time like it's all built out of sounds that are real and happening there and then so um to be able to do that live is really exciting i've got one more little clip here i want to show you just an example of how that works so there's a little bit in the show where um yeah, there's this there's this gang of kids called the Bottle Bank Crew who used to beat up my family members for being foreign. And in the story of Breathe, I, I did a drum solo at school uh, when I was about nine or 10 years old. My teacher discovered I was a drummer and made me do this solo. Uh, and then the next day I found myself being approached by this gang, the Bottle Bank Crew, and I crossed the road. Uh, to try and get away, and they also cross the road. And in in the show, there's a real tense moment where you think I'm about to get beaten up, but instead, this is what happens. I brace myself, ready for the attack, but instead, I'm offered a fist bump. So, I do this a lot in the show. I use the audience members to to be the other characters. So I go up to someone in the front row, and they've got to give me a fist bump, and the exact second, you know, the exact microsecond that their, their fist touches my, the music needs to start again um and in a traditional theatre show you'd have to have an, a technician watching eagle eye from the booth trying not to miss the cue but because i've got glove in my other hand like literally i'm waiting and as soon as they touch it i just press press the button on my other hand and it's just so musical it's so deliciously satisfying for that to happen with zero latency zero delay it just oh it's so real it's so live um and it feels really satisfying as a performer Um, And from the feedback I've had, it's also satisfying for the audience. So those are the tools that I use to create my theatrical audio worlds. You've got your beatboxing, which we call Mouth. You've got your live looping, which we call Beast. And then now we've got the the kind of remote wireless wearable technology to control it that we call Glove. I didn't know whether to go much deeper than that in the kind of talk section. I wondered if you lot had questions uh, so that I can make sure that I'm tailoring what I'm saying to what you people would actually like to hear. So uh, first of all, did you enjoy the talk so far? Uh, I'm definitely a thank you. Oh, look, def- that's sweet, yay, thank you so much. <laughs> um,
1: Great, uh, I didn't know about the glove and uh, that's really interesting, uh, the way you were referring to uh, your tools as a family. That kind of really, you know, takes the idea of collaboration even further in, in, uh, into another territory, which we might return to. Uh, are there any questions from you? Oh, yes, there are, there are, there are. Oh, reloads, okay. So, uh, shall we go to Becky and uh, then... Uh, Dan and then Millie, is that okay? And uh, the others can prepare questions as well. So Becky.
2: I was just wondering, and um, when so you talk about what prompted you to create Beast? And so I was just really interested to know, it sounds like you had really quite an extensive setup at that point. What was it that that wasn't doing for you? Like what, mm. what was it you wanted to be able to do that all of that stuff couldn't? couldn't do? Was it about freedom or,
3: yeah, just really to hear what that thing was that was frustrating? Uh, well, so I feel like um, the way that my brain works is if I'm presented with a tool or a piece of technology or an instrument, um, I need to know everything that that instrument can do, or everything that tool can do. So um, I'm the kind of person who, when there's a new App or piece of software. I, I need to go through every different setting, and I need to try those settings and every different combination that they can be tried in, um, because I need to find out what the possibilities are. And and you know, again, reframing this from an autistic perspective has made this so much easier to understand. Because if you interrupt me while I'm doing that process, I become unreasonably agitated. Um, but it's because I'm, I I don't feel comfortable till I've done my research. So this really worked in my favor when it came to things like live looping because when I first started doing it when I first worked with Bjork that was like 2004 the technology was really basic and I could only afford the most basic you know the most basic versions of these pieces of gear anyway but what I'd end up doing is working through every different possible setting in that machine like I'd find all of the bugs and all of the weird things that in theory were supposed to be you know weren't supposed to be happening like glitches but if I could reproduce those glitches in in a predictable way, then I started turning them into elements of the show. So like, you know, there were bits where it would just do this very strange but quite satisfying glitch. And I'd be like, ooh, let me turn that into a song. And I think that really led to why I became the world champion because everyone else just used it in the way that it was supposed to be used. They just followed the instructions and I never do that. Um, but then that becomes a double-edged sword because then once people started sending me other variations along the same idea, so different types of loopers that had slightly different features to each other um, or, slight, or, or, or slightly different glitches, slightly different weird ways that they weren't even supposed to be being used but, but really lit my brain up. I'd, I'd want to do that. I'd want, I'd want that power as well as the power that this, this tool has that this doesn't have. And then there's a third one here that does... um, So um, these machines are supposed to be standalone machines. They're quite heavy. They're quite bulky. They've got lots of buttons on them. And I was ending up carrying around, you know, five or six of these different units that were able to reproduce a lot of the same functions. But because each of them had their own little idiosyncrasies, I needed them and I couldn't relax if I didn't have them. And that's when I thought, this is mad because, I don't know, the more the more pieces of analog equipment you're plugging into an audio chain, the higher the noise ratio is trying to get them to all synchronize with each other had started to be less musical and more technical and, and it was, you know, it was less fun. So that's when I knew I had to make beast because I was like, what if I could control these machines? What if I could get a machine that would do exactly what I want it to do? Um, So that's why working with software rather than commercial hardware, made so much more sense because when i'm using beast i don't look at the laptop you don't necessarily need to know that it's software i'm using uh controllers to control the, the software so i still have hardware that i interact with and obviously i've got glove as well now but with a controller you can tell what button you want to be what and it can change in different contexts if i'm in a certain mode this button might record a loop but if i'm in another mode it might trigger a sound or I could use it to sample the audience or all these things that you just can't do with an off the shelf piece of hardware. I'm just curious, you mentioned at the beginning of your um, really amazing presentation, how um, you wanted to, when you're performing, you want to keep that performing self alive whilst doing all this other magical technical stuff. I'm just really curious about what's the flow in your, when you're in that flow, what's going through your head and your body when you're doing all this? Like, Is it scripted? Is it something where you're like say this line, press this button? Yeah, I don't know if it's even possible to describe that that feeling. But how do you do that all together? The actual dream when you're a performer is to enter a flow state. So you're not you're really not using your thinking brain in any way. Like if you think about your brain divided into your thinking brain, your procedural brain, um, you want to stay in the in the creative side of your brain at all times. You don't want to be thinking, oh, do I need to press that button or so? I think. The main thing I've always wanted to do whilst designing technology is to reduce barriers to creativity. You don't want to have to like go into menus or you don't want to have to like do any kind of thinking. You want your, your interface to be as instant and immediate as possible so that all of your, all of your ideas can just flow. Um, so yeah, if it's a, if it's a piece of theatre where it's scripted, you want to do that show enough times that it's muscle memory. And you're not thinking, "Oh God, what am? I, do I need to press that button now and then and then I need to walk over there and and that's when a performance ends up being really wooden because the audience can see you do that thinking so yeah, if you want your performance to be slick, it's all built into muscle memory, um so you're not thinking about pressing the button, even though when you went into rehearsals you did you did need to do that um but then I think for me, I could never do a show where it's completely preset like i it would drive me mad I, I i'm an improviser and an an interactor uh so all my shows even ones which have lots of scripting like the, the show breathe has over eight thousand words in it it's got a very very detailed script but there's still huge amounts of the show where i don't know what's going to happen because i'm interacting with the crowd we're making music together i'm sampling then i'm t- turning them into the soundtrack so there's lots of unpredictability but even then you don't want to be thinking about your interface you don't want to be thinking about what button to press next if you're if you're thinking it's because you've not done enough practice yet, you need to work a bit more on becoming like molded with that family of tools so that you're ideally become an extension of your brain. And, and you don't have to think when you move your arm, you don't think, oh, I need to move my arm. It just moves. And ideally, you want that to be happening with your instruments as well.
2: In, in fact, that really have, has answered my question, too, because I was, I was thinking along the same lines that, that these, this technology has effectively become a musical instrument for you and when we're really comfortable with our musical instruments Mm -hmm. we don't think about it Mm -hmm. so I wanted to know the extent to which you improvise in performance um, because you're able to because it it is your instrument it is your your tool Mm -hmm. through which to tell the story and that you are it's so much within your capacity that you are creating in the moment but does that then make it that you to what extent do you move from the script so, you know, you, you have your sort of your basic script, you have your overarching structure, presumably you have lighting and other things that are being cued off it. So there are certain fixed points. So yeah. how much can you improvise given that it's a theatre environment?
3: Yeah, I mean, in a show like Breathe, like there's 8,000 words, there's over 100 lighting cues. Uh, I think there's something like 350 audio cues inside my Ableton setup. Um, so there's a lot that we know is gonna happen. But because it's my show, because I wrote the show, because I created the show, like I, I mess. I wanted to swear then. I wanted to say the F word. I, I mess with the show every single night, which is a nightmare if you're trying to direct me. Like we, I do work with a director, but we've got this understanding that the direction she gives me is is kind of optional. <laughs> like so, on the night if I want to do if I want to do something wildly different and embrace my ADHD, like we've we've built a world where I'm totally able to do that, uh, and then the next night. You know, sometimes that thing I tried out the night before on the spur of the moment really, really worked. And it stays and, it, you know, the show keeps evolving over time and others it just flops. And I'm like, well, you know, don't need to do that tomorrow. So it's fun. I think just like learning and trusting yourself and making sure you're in a, a surrounding where you feel safe to just play is really key. And I think because it for me evolved out of beatboxing where, you know, I was always doing this for me. It wasn't like I, was, I didn't wake up one day and be like, I'm going to learn this piece of music and follow this right or wrong way to do it. Like I wasn't doing it for those reasons. I was doing it as a self-desire. I think that whole attitude has spread throughout all the work. So like there is no right or wrong. It's just whatever feels right to me. And if other people happen to enjoy that, that is an absolute bonus, but it's secondary to, the, to me meeting my creative needs.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Adrian?
3: I was interested in a, a line I heard from one of the clips Um, Well, I think I heard you say was, um, can I have a round of applause for Glove? Um, And it made me think, to what extent is Glove and uh, Beast and Mouth, to what extent are they characters? Um, Because, you know, there's a character in a Beckett play, not I, called Mouth. um, And I'm wondering if, if you think of yourself or that body part as being, you know,
0: distinct from you even though it's telling your story
3: 100 like at the beginning of the show i come out and i say this is a solo show but there's a whole bunch of characters that i'm going to introduce to you these are the tools i'm going to use to tell my story and i think like a solo show like i don't know i've seen a lot of pieces of solo theater and sometimes it can just be really hard work for, for someone with adhd to watch that same person for an hour or longer it's, it can just get really dry we need characters we need contexts. we need like different like energies so defining those really clearly uh and also i'm a collaborator at heart like i i I do enjoy making solo work but my real heart is as like a band leader or someone who who celebrates other people's energy on stage like so i'm uh, if you ever see me perform in a collaborative show you'll see the bit that i love the most is when i'm like make some noise for this person who I'm with. It's just so much joy comes into like celebrating someone else. So that was, I guess, a way for me to be able to do that, because to do that for yourself, I do, I do, I do. I'm not afraid to do it either. I'm like, no, come on guys, make some noise for me. But like to have a character, even if that character is your mouth or a piece of technology and say, come on, make some noise. It's it's really important that the audience, important to me that the audience feels safe that, they are expected to participate. They're expected to show love. Just sitting there cold is not going to work. Yeah, any any tools you can have to to create that comfort in the crowd. Yeah, there's characters in my story for sure.
1: Great, thank you so much, though. That's an excellent point to finish on. And thank you for checking in. And yeah. Uh, thank, you. Thank,
3: you. thank you. Have a wonderful rest of your conference. Thank you for having Thank, you. thank you.